If you'd open with me in your Bible, we'll be continuing in that book this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Today we'll be looking at verses 15 through 24. And wherever I read things like the story today, Paul's account of what's going on, I'm reminded of the words of Joseph to his brothers. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Genesis 15:20. We have to ask ourselves as we consider this passage, what good did the endless tax attacks of the godless Jews and the Greek scholastics against Paul, what good did they bring to him and to us? And I think we'll consider that as we read it. But first, I want to read the entirety of the chapter today. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God who is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves receive and are comforted by God. As for for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, so you also share in our comfort. But we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that is to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You must also help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessings granted us through the prayers of many. For our boast is this the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not with earthly wisdom, but with the grace of God, and supremely towards you. We are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did patiently understand us, that on the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I facilitating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? Surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Savannah and Timothy and I, 
It's not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and has also put his seal upon us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming to Corinth again. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work for you with joy for you, that you stand firm in your faith. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your many mercies to Paul as he served you and spread the gospel throughout the Greek and Roman world of his day. As a great example, as a missionary, a minister, a pastor, and an apostle. And we pray, Lord, that as we read his account here and understand the trial he was undergoing, that we would be filled with understanding and grace in enduring our own trials and in understanding what must be. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's a spiritual theological truth revealed in this text. We'll get to towards the end of the message. But I want to look at the, the experience that was going on that prompted Paul to write this. Remember, he says here he had a very real desire to visit them. It was the first thing on his mind. And the reason for that we see in verse 14 was his confidence in them, that they would be able to boast in him and him and them of their, of their faithfulness and of their, their work together and of all that they had accomplished and of the gospel and all the souls that had been saved. So he hoped to give them a second blessing. Now, we're not talking about that heretical second blessing, some sort of post-salvation blessing where you suddenly become obedient. Obedience is part of the blessing of regeneration, the being born again. And he's also not speaking of causing them to speak in tongues or something like that. What, What he's talking about here is that he wants to bless them by, as an apostle and a pastor, coming to this fledgling church and being able to teach them a second time. He taught them once. They've now had a chance to mull over what they learned. They've had a chance to put it into practice in their life. They've had a chance to experience what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be born again. And now he's hoping to come to them again and bless them with teaching about how to live the godly Christian life. All Christians need to do good works as a result of their new heart. That's really the evidence of their salvation, the evidence of our salvation. If our life is not characterized by a new life and a new obedience, then are we really born again? John says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides him and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Who does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is one who does not love his brother. 1 John 3, 9 and 10. You don't need some second blessing to start a life of obedience. It's something, if if God has changed your heart, then obedience will naturally flow out of that heart. It's the fruit that shows that you are saved. And concerning spiritual gifts, Paul had already 
said to them in his first letter, 1 Corinthians 12, 28 through 30, that God had appointed in the church first apostles and prophets and teachers and miracles and gifts of healing and helping and ministering and all kinds of tongues. But he says, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? The way it is written in the Greek, the negative answer is expected. No, of course not. You know, we don't get a second blessing that gives us those things. It's something that God did really to authenticate the message of the apostle. They were teaching new things. The revelation about Christ, which was hidden and veiled in the Old Testament, and is now revealed in full. And how do we know whether they're telling the truth? Well, God through them did miracles. And that was the testimony that they were to be believed. So this blessing them again is about teaching them a second time. Now that they've had a chance to mature in their faith a bit, they get another chance to hear from him. Many of the churches in that day had basically lay leaders. They didn't have people who were well-schooled in in theology and well-schooled in the Bible. And of course, God was revealing and writing down the New Testament through the apostles at that time. They didn't have the New Testament. And so having him come in person to teach would be a tremendous blessing for them. So he had a plan to come and visit them again. And he wrote about this in his first letter. I'll, I'll visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter there so that you may help me on my journey whenever I go. For I do not want to see you just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. See, he understands the Lord may have a different plan than Paul. He isn't certain of his own plans because the Lord is directing him often miraculously in what he should do, and often providentially. But he said, I will stay in in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work is open to me, and there are many adversaries. That was 1 Corinthians 16, 5 through 9. So he wanted to stay with them. He wanted to visit them on the way to Macedonia and on the way back. Now, if you remember your geography, Israel, his home was in near Israel in Lebanon. Corinth was here. Macedonia was here. So he would be making a, round, a big loop to get around, very much out of his way. But he wanted to do that. It would be shorter not to go to Corinth. But because of his love for him, for them, his desire to serve them, his desire to see their spiritual growth, he planned on going the wrong, long way around so that he could meet them. And on the way home, he wanted to do the same thing so that he could see them again and spend some time with them and really help develop their church. Because you know, without proper preaching, it's hard for a church, the members of a church, to really grow without the word of God. And for that, they still needed the apostle because he hadn't even written Second Corinthians when he made that plan. So there were a lot of things still missing in their knowledge. And he also says that he wanted to have them send him on his way to Jerusalem. Now, he's probably talking about the collection he mentions in 1 Corinthians 16. Uh, Concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the church of Galatia, so you also are to do on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collection when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable, I should go also, and they will accompany me. Now, note his transparency in this. He's 
been attacked for various things, and he's assured them already of his uh, single-mindedness towards them. He wasn't speaking out of both sides of his face, of his integrity, of his uh, honor, honorable treatment of all men. And he's saying here, concerning their offering, he's not going to take it, give it to me, and I'll make sure they get it. It's, you know, send your people with me, or send them alone, and I'll just write a letter to go with them. So that that way you have complete confidence that the money you have raised for the poor in Jerusalem, there was a famine and there was great persecution in Jerusalem. And so the people were suffering, and they were raising money for them. He wants to make sure that everything's on the up and up. Everybody has full confidence that what they are doing for God is really being done for God. Uh, We have problems sometimes with missions, that foreign missionaries don't always understand this meaning people from other cultures, because in their culture, if you want me to give an account of it, it means you don't trust me. Uh, But Paul is saying, I want to give an account. I want to have it all on the up and up so that there's no possibility for the devil to bring in slander. Again, back to what we read this morning, that he really wanted them to understand his integrity as a man and as a servant of God, leaving no room for false accusations. But what happened? Apparently, he didn't get to visit them, and that was a source of attack. See, Paul talks out of both sides of his face. He says, oh, I'm going to come and visit you, and then he ignores you and disappears. And so he says, verse 17, was I facilitating when I did this? Was I going back and forth? I don't know. Maybe I'll come. Maybe I won't come. Was it something like that? Did he say one thing to appease them with no concern about the truthfulness of it? You know, I've met many men like this. Whatever you ask them, it's sure, no problem. Okay. And they have no intention of ever doing it. And you can often tell by looking at them. And Paul is saying, I'm not like that. I'm not a man pleaser. I'm not paying lip service. I'm, I, I'm not a man with no concern for you who isn't going to follow through. Well, that's a co- very common sin. It costs men their respect and trust. And this was the attack being made against him by these scholastics that Paul is like that. He's untrustworthy because he didn't come. Paul wasn't working for his own purposes and going back on his word when it suited him either. He cared for them. He loved them. He wanted to help them. He had a great passion for their hearts and for their souls and for their development. His deeds, his not returning, his deed was not proof of some kind of moral failure on his part, which apparently, as we read through the book, we see his adversaries were saying, see, that's who Paul is. Why do you follow him? And we've already talked about Paul is persecuted and harassed. Why do you want to be like your teacher, like Christ, like Paul? And now they're saying, see, he's, he's not honest. He, does, he says one thing and he does another. Why would you trust him? Why would you believe his teaching? Why would you follow his gospel? And that's ultimately where the attack is. It's not an attack on Paul and his integrity. It's really attack against God in the the gospel of Jesus Christ. Men who want to lead followers after themselves have their own ideas and would never submit to God's law and God's word. So what was Paul's reason for not following the plan that he related to them? He did choose, we see, and I'm going to jump down to the end of the chapter, verse 23 and 24. We see his reason for changing his plans. 
First and foremost, it was to spare them. And if we read into chapter 2, sometimes the chapter divisions actually break a thought, and that's the case here. Chapter 2, the first four verses, I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad? But the one whom I have pained. And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you, that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. He wanted to help them and he didn't want to hurt them. And so he decided to postpone his visit until they had a chance to take care of the things he had written them about. He wanted to serve them as an apostle, to serve them as a servant of Christ. Remember, we talked about Wednesday before last in our Bible study about Paul's character. Paul's character as a servant of God. Remember, he was shipwrecked. He was washed up on the shore of Malta, hanging to a board, dragged himself out of the ocean with everyone else. And the locals came and they laid them down and they built a fire for them to warm them. Now, what do you do in such a situation? You rest and you wait for them to build the fire and to give you food and to take care of you because, no, Paul gets up. People are cold. They're wet. I need to help with the fire so that they're warm. You know, that servant heart. And, of course, what happens to him? He gets bit by a viper. Uh, but we see his heart. That was a heart you see as you read through all the books of the New Testament that he's written. You see that heart. A man who cares so much for God's people, so much for the flock that God has entrusted him with, that he just naturally gets up and serves and helps and does what is best for them, because that is his heart's desire for them. That desire we see also in his ministry with the Philippians. That great passage about it's better to die than live. Remember, he says, for to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. If I am alive in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which will I choose? I cannot tell. I'm a hard press between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, for it is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Philippians 1, 21 through 24. He's not afraid to die for his faith. In fact, he was looking forward to being reunited with Christ in heaven. He wanted that. But he wanted more to serve them. He said, it's more necessary for me to stay and serve. And so he was confident he would be kept alive through the trials and the expectation of death he was facing in prison and in beatings and in floggings and in stoning and in all of those things. But that was really his servant's heart, his servant's attitude. Even though he wanted to be with Christ, he would put that off to serve God's people. And that's the heart we see here. He, he didn't want to hurt them. He didn't want them to suffer. Now, what was the matter that he was writing them about very harshly, rebuking them, in fact? 
It's probably what we find in 1 Corinthians 5, 1 and 2. It's reported among you that there's sexual immorality of a kind not even tolerated among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife. You're arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Now, if you're not familiar with the Old Testament law, if a man took one of the wives of his father, who was not his mother, it might have been acceptable amongst the pagans in Israel's day, but it wasn't acceptable to God. That was considered to be you know, taking, uncovering the nakedness of your father through having his wife. Now, perhaps the father had died, and this was a second or a third wife, and this man took it. They thought it was great that he was taking care of his father's wife. Uh, God says that's sexual immorality. He was to be put out of the church. Harsh thing. Church discipline is actually very scary and very painful. If you've ever been a church, in a church where this, something like this has happened, the church may reject it because it's divisive. Sometimes the minister is treated the way Moses was treated. You remember Korah's rebellion? A man had uh, broken the Sabbath law, and they, went, they brought it before God and said, what shall we do? And God said, he has broken the Sabbath, my law, right in front of me in my camp. Stone him. That was the punishment we told, I said. And so the whole community came together and stoned the man. Well, the next thing you know, Korah has assembled a rebellion. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said, You've gone too far. For all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of God? It's in Numbers 16.3. They were ready to reject Moses and remove him because as God's instrument, he had insisted on church discipline. Now, we've talked about church discipline before. The purpose of it is not to punish the offender, but to bring them to repentance. And in 2 Corinthians, we will see in this case, you know, the man has repented. It's enough for him. Show him your love. Welcome him back. Don't allow him to be completely crushed and give up on the faith. Since he has repented, you know, receive him again. And that is the purpose of church discipline. But many people look at it the way Korah and his fellows did, that, no, you can't punish us. It's wrong. It's divisive. It's evil. So he, he was giving them this opportunity. Rather than visit you before this is resolved, I'm going to wait until it's done so that you have an opportunity to deal with these things so we won't have the pain of my visit having to involve something like this instead of the joy of each other and the joy of God and the Spirit and the joy of the things of the Lord as he teaches. He also, though, did it so that they would have that time to build their own confidence in the Lord. <clears throat> How do we really build our faith? By testing our faith. How do we test our faith? By having something really hard that we don't want to do and doing it because it's the will of the Lord, and we know that, and persevering through it. And having succeeded, it's like, you know, how do you become a marathon runner? You go out one day and you run a marathon. Not going to work, right? You start running a half a mile and you build yourself up. Uh, same with our faith. 
We start with small things, and each time we successfully say, the Lord has said, I, but I need to do this or want to do something different because, and we say, but I'm going to do what the Lord says. Even though it's easier for me to do something else. I won't be harassed or persecuted if I disobey, you know, but I will if I obey. When we, do, we obey and we do what we're supposed to do, and we finish it and we survive it, our faith and confidence in God goes up, our strength goes up, and we build that as a habit. And that, you know, doing it over and over again, that habit becomes a character trait for us, where the first reaction is to do what's right, not what's wrong. Whereas in our old sinful man, the first reaction was to do what's wrong, and it's hard to make ourselves do what's right. It's not, as we talked about Wednesday, not hypocrisy to force ourselves to do what's right, because eventually our heart will follow our deeds, if our deeds are done, what God wants. It's a lot of work, personal experience speaking here, to change our attitude. And we use that example of the thief. The thief should steal no more, no more, but earn his own living and give it away, earn, give away what he earned. The idea being a thief takes what he didn't earn, and to correct that problem, start over and over again, you know, earning money and giving some of it away, because that will change your your heart attitude over time. And the same is true for just about every sin. And the same is true for just being obedient to the will of God that's revealed to us. The more we do it, the more confidence we build, the more we grow in our godliness through our obedience. Right? The more we obey, the more we desire to obey. The more we disobey, the less we desire. The more we disobey, the more we desire not to obey. And it feeds one way or the other. And so he's giving them a chance to really build up their faith and strengthen their faith and strengthen their walk with God by giving them some time to work through these issues before he comes. And he thinks that was the right thing to do. And I think because of the way it's recorded in Scripture, we can believe that that was the right thing for him to do. So jumping back up to 18 through 22, we have this theological truth that has been brought about by this crisis of being attacked for not not keeping with the plan that he had expressed originally. He says essentially that our words to you have been faithful, just as the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which brought about your salvation, is obviously faithful. The meaning here concerns not being yes and no, his word not being yes and no, but being yes. We talked about his opponents being little more than peddlers of God's word a few weeks ago. He says in Second Corinthians chapter 2, 17, that we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So he's assuring them that rather than being deceitful, we have sincerity. God commissioned us, and God is watching us, and we know he sees. Now, peddlers will say and do whatever they need to do to get you to buy it, right? Uh, probably we've all fallen for one of them at some point in our lives, where we buy into the story, buy into the claims. He got taken on Amazon a couple of times because they use the same pictures as the legitimate project, product, and they send you a knockoff product. 
And of course, on Amazon, you just send it back. It's not a big deal. But uh, theologically, many will peddle God's word as a means of making a living or making themselves popular or making themselves powerful. Paul says it was never like that. He never had any secret schemes, any plots, any plans or alternate purposes. His hearts and his deeds were simple, and by simple we mean singular, not simple-minded, but without the deceit and deception and treachery that men often have, where you need to unravel what's going on to figure out whether he's being fair and honest or not. Paul is saying there were never any of those schemes. He says in chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, we've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Peddlers will say the truth of God to the one who wants to hear it. There are many pastors like that, but they tamper with the truth or hide it from the ones who don't want to hear the truth. So in a sense, they say both yes and no. And that's Paul's point here. We're not like that. We're living and preaching in sincerity and simplicity. Both our message and our life are that way. As we see in verse 19, he's referring here really to the doctrines of the gospel to the preaching about Jesus Christ, about the truth. Not a peddled version of the truth, but the real version of the truth. The truth is that Christ came to save his people, that he died for the sins of his people to take them away, and that through faith we are united to that. And the righteous works of Christ, the fulfillment of the law in his life, is credited to our account, and our sin is credited to his account on the cross and paid for by him. That gospel message was was hated by the people. But God is always faithful to his word. God is not a man that he should lie or the son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and he will not do it? Has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Numbers 23, 19. For as rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return but water the earth making it bring forth sprout and giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but shall accomplish what I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Isaiah 55, 10 and 11. What is at mind here in this verse 20 is that, that from the day man sinned, God has given a promise. And that promise, we see it in Genesis 3.15. I'll put enmity, speaking to the devil, the serpent, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between her offspring and your offspring, and you shall bruise his head and he shall bruise his heel. That promise of Christ's victory over the devil and our redemption goes all the way back to when man first sinned. The prophets make it pretty clear the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and call his, you shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. Isaiah 7:14. And for unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, 
Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord shall do this, Isaiah 9. When Jesus came, these promises were fulfilled. The promises of God, all of them really find their fulfillment, their yes in Jesus. The more the, the promise is not just about the coming of Christ, but the salvation we have in Christ. Isaiah 53, 4-6, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we have streamed him stricken, smitten, and by God afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. We, all like sheep, have gone astray and have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We mustn't forget that promise. And perhaps the greatest of them was the promise God made to them of being born again. That wasn't something Jesus made up. He was actually referring to the teaching that he had given through the prophet Ezekiel. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put in within you. I will remove that, start of home, that heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. You know, that is fulfilled in Christ. How does he do all of those things through the Holy Spirit? Yes, but God is the one doing it. And the justification for being able to do it is not that God winks at sin and says it's okay, but that he paid for it all by pouring his wrath to our sin out on his son so that we might have this peace with God. Paul explains this peace that the Son of God will bring through the work of the Holy Spirit, saying that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us this message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's later in 2 Corinthians in chapter 5, 17 through 21. Paul is referring to these things that he will later reveal in the book. When he talks about these promises, these promises are fulfilled in Christ. All of the promises God makes in the Old Testament to his people, be they in the, fulfilled in the Old Testament, the New Testament, or in eternity, all of them are in Christ. That is where they find their fulfillment a great theological doctrinal truth that's revealed because these wicked men were attacking Paul.
Sadly, though, well, Paul says in verse 20 that this is why through Christ we utter our men to God for his glory. Many men see this ministry of reconciliation, this good news about Christ, as a hindrance. And they oppose it and attack it as was going on in, in, in Corinth in Paul's time. But he assures them that God is witness to this salvation in you and in us. That's how you know the truth. How do you know the doctrine was true? Because that was the doctrine that opened your eyes to see salvation. That was the doctrine that God used to show you the way to him, the way to be reconciled to him. The gospel that saved you is not of man's wisdom. It's not that man persuaded you, and having persuaded you, you were saved. It's that God worked in you. God took out that heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. That God put his spirit in you. That God caused you to turn to him and to obey him. The instrument of our salvation is God's truth, Paul is saying, which he proclaimed. And that that gospel of truth is the power of God. Paul wrote to the Romans, remember, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to the salvation of everyone who believes, the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. For it is written, the just, the righteous, shall live by faith. Romans 1, 16 and 17. Sadly, while Paul was not ashamed of the gospel, many were ashamed of the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 1, 22 through 24, he wrote to them, The Jews demand a sign and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. His point, though, in this passage is that the gospel that saved them had to be true and that those who preached it had to be true in preaching it or would have had no power since the power is not from men but from God. And he's reminding them then that their confidence should be in the truth because they've seen the effect of the truth, the saving of their own souls. He goes on to say that God has anointed us, put his seal on us, given us the spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. He wrote much the same thing to the Ephesians. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. So all these promises in Christ, the promise of salvation, the blessings, eternity, they are all fulfilled in Christ. Now, often we get very tired of the enemy's attacks, the most grievous being like the ones Paul is facing here, attacks from within the church. We get saddened by it, especially when they're attacks on the truth and the gospel. They are a burden, a fiery trial. But there are two things we should remember. First, yes, they're inevitable. As Jesus forewarned us, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you're of the world, the world would love you of its own, as its own. 
But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is no greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept your word, they will, my word, they will keep yours also. John 15, 18-20. If you come teaching the things Jesus taught, they're going to reject you. And Paul came teaching the doctrines of Christ. The world will reject you. If the world accepts you, then you're not believing and teaching the things of God. Second thing is God's promise in Romans 8.28 that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Why was Paul facing persecution? From sinful man's point of view, he was preaching obnoxious things. He was rejecting common sense and preaching the gospel of Christ. He was despising public morality by saying God's word was righteous and society's will was wicked. For denouncing idolatry, including their pride as the wise and the educated. He was denounced for being a hate leader and calling sin, sin, and urging men to repentance and to life. He was hated for rendering his converts useless to the world by urging them to die to sin and self and live for Christ in eternity. He was harassed and persecuted for making waves and causing trouble with his inconvenient biblical truth. But God's intent was different. Paul has already told us a few of the reasons why he suffered the things he did. We don't know all of the reasons, but a couple in this passage. Verse 3, it was prepare him to comfort others. By having suffered and been comforted by God, he was able then more able to comfort others. We talked about this. Somebody who has had cancer is often the best one to talk to somebody who's just been diagnosed to help them understand. Paul and all the things he suffered was well equipped to sympathize with and show compassion to and share God's comfort with those who suffered. It was also for the Corinthians' good. How? Well, one of the ways is he wrote this letter that they had now in writing, the things that they needed to know, the things they needed to understand. So the suffering that he was dealing with, the persecution, the harassment, the accusations, slanderous accusations against him, they worked out for the good of the Corinthians in that they had this great doctrinal truth and many other promises of God revealed and explained to them in the book of Second Corinthians. It's for our good. We might not have this letter. We might not have these doctrines. We might not have these wonderful, encouraging things that are written in here if it were not for their hatred for the gospel and their attempt to corrupt it. And ultimately, it was for God's kingdom and for God's glory. We know from what he has said, and we know from reading the scriptures, that indeed, all of God's promises come to us and are fulfilled for us through Christ and through his work on the cross. And for that, we should rejoice and be grateful and be thankful no matter what trials we endure. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we need but look to Christ to understand the promises you have made throughout your word, that we might receive the fulfillment of them in him. 
that we might not be worried about whether it is in our strength or our will or our ability that we will get to heaven, but that if we have truly had faith in your Son, if you have truly taken out our heart of stone and given us a heart of flesh that we might have faith, that indeed all your promises will be yes in Christ for us. Knowing that, Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us to walk by faith, not by sight, to live not for today and for this world, but to live for eternity with you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.